This program has references to family violence, men's violence, and violence in general. Please take care and turn off the podcast if it is triggering for you. People impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse can contact 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-737-732, a 24-hour national sexual assault, domestic and family violence counseling and support service. This podcast is recorded as part of Safer Pathways Project in Prevention of Violence Against Women, funded through the Australian Government's Department of Social Services. The views presented in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the funder nor of MCWH. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I pay my respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging and I acknowledge that as migrants to this country, we benefit daily from the displacement of Aboriginal people and colonization of their land. Hello, I'm Vahide from Multicultural Center for Women's Health, and you're listening to Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project that aims to help migrant and refugee women living in regional areas that are experiencing or at risk of family violence and sexual assault to access support services. Why do we say migrant and refugee at MCWH? There are lots of terms that people use to talk about migrant and refugee communities. At MCWH, we use the term migrant and refugee to describe anyone living in Australia who was born overseas or whose parents or grandparents were born overseas in a predominantly non-English speaking country. We say migrant and refugee to highlight the impacts of migration and settlement process on women's health and well-being. It reminds us that the barriers we face are mostly because of systems and policies, not because of cultures or countries we come from. Today, I will be talking to Gagan Kauchima on the invaluable work health educators and bilingual workers do in the community and organizations. Gagan Kau Chima is from Punjab, India, and speaks Punjabi, Hindi, and English. Since completing Master of Nutrition and Dietetics from the University of Canberra in 2008, she has worked extensively as a dietitian in chronic disease management and prevention. Gagan also specializes in training design and delivery, and at the moment works in the area of communication skills training to health professionals. Gagan's passion to support women in improving their health brought her to MCWH, where she started as a health educator in 2014. Her work at MCWH, including several radio sessions and health education sessions in the community, is backed by a lifetime of professional and personal experience. I would like to share a statement that has always given me strength to work in the women's health area. This statement was said by Guru Nanak, the founder of Sikh religion, the faith that I follow. Uh, One of his statements is translated as, the kings are born from the women, how can she be bad? Gagan, welcome to this episode of Making the Links. Thank you, Vahide. Thanks so much for inviting me to this very valuable podcast series. 
Gagan, most of services and practitioners know the importance of working with health educators in the community. I'm really interested to know throughout your experience, why is it important to have bilingual workers in organizations? It can really help organizations reach people from migrant and refugee background very easily. And most importantly, it helps to connect with them more effectively in a meaningful and a more impactful manner. One of the reasons uh, is because when bilingual health workers communicate with people of their own culture in their own language, they are in a better position to make connections with them and serve them as per their own requirements. They know the methods, the, the techniques of communication that work for their communities. They very well understand their needs, their worries, their anxieties, their concerns while living in Australia. And they can then tailor the services or the health education, whatever their role is, to the specific needs of the communities. Knowing the, the needs of the communities can really help them tailor those services to them. I guess another important point is that they can offer health education in a culturally and uh, linguistically appropriate context. It's a fact that often bilingual health education is confused with interpreting, but it's more than that. It's really more than that. I often find that women in my culture, when they are even very good at English, um, they're listening, they're speaking, or even they're reading, maybe at a good level, but they are there because I understand their culture very well. Coming from the same culture, bilingual health workers, they are able to quickly build rapport with them, particularly by talking about the topic from a more cultural perspective. When I deliver, for example, a health education session on the topic of, say, fertility to, to Punjabi women, especially about age and its relation to reproductive outcomes, the fact that female and male fertility decreases with age, that particular topic, I start the session by asking them a question, you know, what was the expectation from you a few months after you got married? The straight answer comes from majority of the women is we are asked by our mothers and mother-in-laws or even grandmoms, you know, when is the baby coming? You know, why haven't you got pregnant yet? Then I explain to them that even though it is your body, you have the choice to when you make a baby or whether you even want to make a baby. But they are correct in asking because if you do want to become a mother, you must not delay. And then I link it to science, the statistics and the research evidence. So knowing the culture, I'm able to find the pain points or the hooks that directly help them relate to the prevalent beliefs about women and fertility in Punjabi culture. And at the same time, I also keep empowering them to take their health and their rights in their own hands. With the same example, the, the fertility sessions example, the women often say that the talks about why they're not getting pregnant would annoy their husbands to the point that he also starts to question her reproductive health. 
So that's where I also talk about their right to make choices, about gender inequality, about the validity of those questions. Again, linking it back to science that men and women are equally likely to have fertility problems. So don't let people point a finger on women in your community when it comes to fertility. It's again our patriarchy, the male dominant culture and society that is responsible for such acts. So you can see that making a connection while delivering health education session becomes easy when a person from your own culture talk to you. Yet another point about why bilingual health workers are better suited to deliver health education or services to people from their own culture is about the language barrier. There are times when some of the words in English do not even exist in Punjabi or Hindi. So someone who knows a little bit of English, they may struggle to understand the content fully. When I deliver, for example, sessions on cervical cancer and the importance of getting cervical screening tests done, the word cervix, where the cancer can grow, that word does not even exist in Hindi or Punjabi. There's no word for it. So in my sessions, I talk about it in the way they can understand. I show them the diagrams or, of course, models um, in the pre-COVID area. Uh, and that's how they get interested in the topic. So if we depend just on translated material or the interpreters, we would lose the opportunities to effectively deliver the information in these communities, information that's linguistically and culturally appropriate. It is very important to break those barriers of language and communication if you want to really empower women to take more control over their health and well-being. And, and we need to train bilingual health workers who not only know the cultural aspects, but who can then link the content back to science and research and who are adequately trained on how to facilitate effectively. I'm sure that uh, this is a very rewarding job, Gagan. As you were describing, I can see how it can be very challenging as well. And it can be very emotionally demanding. What has been your experience in this matter? Yeah, it is a very rewarding work. And yes, it is challenging too. I have several examples when the discussions that we had during the delivery of the session with women, they were extremely emotional and I was drained mentally. I remember one of them in particular, we went to a regional area. This was a four hour session. So in the morning we did cancer prevention and general women's health topics. And in the afternoon, the topic was family violence. Since the model of delivering health education sessions we use at MCWH, it's, it's just not a lecture mode, as you know. There's a lot of interaction, lots of storytelling, and I empower each woman uh, to speak up and uh, share something that could help the group remember the concepts. When the session on family violence started, I played a video of a family violence survivor. And as soon as that was played, majority of the women had tears in their eyes. There were strong emotions in the room and women started to share their own experiences or experiences from women from their community with family violence. Again, you know, that was a really challenging session. I was listening, I was paying attention. At the same time, I was empathizing. 
being compassionate to all women in the room, and at the same time, delivering the key messages, linking stories and, and, and examples to abuse, to, to coercive control, to gender equity, and the impacts of all that is happening to women's general health, to the well-being of their children, uh, and, and my usual tasks of facilitating that had to be accounted for, importantly, you know, managing time, distributing the written resources. So you can see, you know, such education sessions are not easy. There's a lot going on in our minds and the aftermath of it. I was lucky I had Amira, whom I debriefed, and we tried to talk through it while traveling back to Melbourne. So it was really emotionally draining. And being like four hours of travel, it was physically exhausting as well. This is just one example, but majority of the sessions are similar. The sharing of stories is a powerful tool and that I use with women and that really works and I'll never stop. But that's true, Vaide. It can be emotionally draining. In, in, in psychology, they call it vicarious trauma or, or compassion fatigue. And I do use my own strategies to avoid this happening, like debriefing with the manager, as I said earlier, or by doing something that I enjoy most soon after the session, like it could be a nice cup of tea with a friend or, or indulging in Indian cooking, that helps. Again, one of the things that I have seen recently speaking with bilingual workers in regional Victoria, as well as Metro Melbourne, is that community members may go to them for many different requests because bilingual workers are usually known to the community. So they might be asked to fill out a form or they might be consultant on how different services work in Australia. And this also may put pressure on bilingual workers' time and mental health. They say sometimes they feel obligated to help their community members. And in most cases, this is not paid because it's outside of business hours. What can be done to take the pressure off bilingual workers in the community? In my over seven years as a health educator, yes, I have had several moments when apart from my time delivering a session, I have spent time with women on other matters because they see I'm able to help them. They start to ask other questions or want to consult me for other reasons that they may not be part of my role as a health educator. Out of obligation, yes, I have spent time without being paid. Although in my case, most often that has happened because women know that I'm also a registered dietitian. So if I'm delivering a two-hour session, say on, on diabetes prevention or heart health or cancer prevention or even family violence as part of my role as a health educator from MCWH, Women often stop me after the session and start asking me particular questions about their diet. I can only give general information as without an understanding of their health and other medical information, such as their blood test reports or medications. It's not really possible to offer any more support. And 
I don't even do private practice, so I can't even say you can talk to me in the clinic. So all I can do is refer them to the relevant websites or encourage them to talk to a dietitian who can sit with them and talk with their diet in a bit more length. And having that sort of conversation after delivering a full-on session, it does take time and extra effort. And I can't say no. It, it's, it's funny, so many people call me even after the session and request if I can support them or, you know, some people even say, can you start private practice so they can come to me? But I have to apologize. What the organization can do is make some extra time available for those types of questions. So getting some extra funding available to the bilingual workers team and also regular debriefs with managers to see if this is becoming a trend and what else can be done to overcome such pressures of extra requests as more likely they will keep coming. Those communities, those women, they have so much trust in us that they will actually come with any and every question that they might have in their mind or come up with some, for example, referrals or support services or forms that they need us to fill in. And they know that we might be capable of doing that for them. Yes, I do agree with you, Gagan. I mean, we should celebrate that, don't we? That when women come back to us, it means that they have trusted us already. So they want to just talk to us and know more. That is great. And it's very true. You're right. Organizations, we should be thinking about putting extra funding to be able to support those kind of requests. So as a health educator, you have identified that the need is there and it can be questions about health, family violence systems, filling out forms, but the need is there. So I guess we just need to put more thinking in funding and services that we can provide because we have the resources, we have the health educators, we just need to make that happen. It's something that we feel so proud of ourselves when those questions do come even after the session. It just shows that they have so much trust, so uh, much respect for us. You're listening to Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project. We are back and we are talking to Gagan on the importance of health educators, support and service with organizations. Gagan, you have been delivering many, many education sessions, I'm sure. What are some of the ways you have adopted to talk about sensitive topics such as family violence or sexual assault? Family violence, it's, it's a very tricky topic to deliver. Firstly, it's not very easy to promote this topic. I mean, if I ask a community group that I'm going to be delivering on the topic of family violence, not many women will attend. And that's for several reasons. Most importantly, they don't believe that it is even very prevalent in their communities. They think family violence is some Western concept. And that's because they are unaware of the types of abuse. 
they might think physical violence is the only issue that is included in family violence. They often don't know that it's a pattern of behavior that is physically, emotionally, and psychologically abusive. So they would not attend. There's a lot of stigma attached to it. And most women are in denial that any such thing. So firstly, I changed the topic heading. I asked the organizers to say that it is a session, for example, on healthy relationships, rather than saying it's a session of family violence. And then I start the session strategically, starting with gender equality and letting women share their stories about how they felt when they were treated unequally from their brothers, for example. So they will start to share and their experience of how they were treated unequally within their family or by their brothers or even by their moms when it came to the differences between a male child and a female child. I give them time to share those stories. Then I very slowly and tactfully move on to the elements of healthy and then unhealthy relationships the, the respect, the trust, and then the opposite of all this, the injustice, the inequality, making the other person feel scared, uh, manipulation. Again, they share stories, perhaps from what they've seen around them. That then lets me land smoothly to the topic of what is abuse, what is coercive control, and how prevalent it is in, in every culture. No culture is immune to it. And since they are the ones who would have shared their experience and stories on gender equality, on the patriarchal culture, the male-dominating culture, the beliefs and the stereotypes, the gender roles and the gender norms, they would have talked about it in the first part of the session and how all that has hurt their feelings throughout their lives. They are then in a better position to talk about how all this is related to family violence. So a stronger foundation helps me then get into the very topic of family violence. And since I know that most often in Indian culture, the extended family is also involved in the incidence of family violence, I then share some case studies. I mean, I don't call them a case study, but I share some makeup stories. For example, I'll say, look, this is Priya's story or this is Kuldeep's story. And, and I involve the extended family in the stories. And that way they can relate to their experience or their incidents that they have seen in their own families and with their friends or their cousins. That helps me empower them to, to identify signs of family violence in others. So those case studies, those stories, even though they might be makeup stories, they are really powerful tool that I use. And that helps them to empower, to seek timely support before a life is ruined. So really, you know, strategically walking through the topics, changing their sequence if required, asking to share as many stories as the time permits, requesting to comment on some of the stories that I share, some of the makeup stories, 
then empowering to identify examples of patriarchy in their culture, examples of gender inequality in their lives. They, they are really some of the techniques to safely deliver the family violence topic. Again, I have worked with you in the community and on some education sessions, and I've always heard great things about your work and knowledge. And what you just told me, it's great planning for an education session on very sensitive topics such as family violence. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us, Gagan? In general, I'd like to add that there is no better time than now to support women from migrant and refugee communities. I'm talking about the COVID situation. We all know that has had impacts on all of us no matter where we were and where we come from. So the bilingual health workers, they have offered a lot of support. We know at MCWH, we delivered sessions and various other teams at MCWH, they contributed in a lot of ways during different phases of the pandemic as much as we possibly could. So I strongly feel that migrant and refugee women are going to be needing support in the coming years while we are still in the pandemic and to deal with the aftermath of it all. So I would encourage all the organizations to utilize their bilingual workforce to help this vulnerable group in this most effective way. Thank you, Gagan, for accepting our invitation today. And thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you for inviting me, Vete. It has been a pleasure. This was presented through Making the Links, a prevention of violence against women project coordinated by MCWH and funded by the Australian government's Department of Social Services. People impacted by sexual assault, domestic or family violence and abuse can contact 1-800-RESPECT, 1-800-737-732 a 24-hour national sexual assault, domestic, family violence, counseling and support service. For help in your language, contact InTouch at 1-800-755-988 or visit intouch.org.au. They provide legal support no matter what your visa status is. For the men's referral service, call 1-300-766-491. Lifeline telephone 131114, services available 24 hour a day for suicide prevention and crisis support. You can also get free translation support through TIS on 131450 and ask them to call any of these numbers for you.